everybody. Welcome to Whiskey Web and Whatnot, your favorite podcast about whiskey, web, and whatnot. With myself, Robbie Wagner, my co-host, Charles William Carpenter III, as always. And our guest today is Adam Wathen. Is that correct? Well, Wathen. 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 Sorry. Wathen. (laughs) Okay. And it depends on where you're from, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, so if you want to give people a little intro into who you are and what you do yeah sure so i'm adam i uh probably most people at this point know me as the guy who created uh, tailwind css so that's kind of what i work on these days we've got like a, a company that kind of works on that these days there's about seven and a half of us working on it and the sort of surrounding ecosystem full time so that's kind of what what I do, work on a CSS framework, work on some tools around the CSS framework, work on some commercial templates around the CSS framework, and uh, that keeps me pretty busy these days. Cool. Sorry, there's a stink bug that continues to try to climb on my microphone. Nice. <laughs> Just wants to be a podcast guest. Yeah. I'm assuming the seven and a half means someone works part-time and not that you have a half a person working? A half person. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Seems politically incorrect if that was yeah. how you were describing a, a disabled person. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, so so Adam does not drink, so we're going to do... Well, he drinks, but not liquor, is what he said. Yes. So we're going to do a, a quick little... Uh, we did a barrel pick of whiskey we mentioned a couple of times. We're going to do that real quick, try that, and then we'll move on to talking more about Tailwind. Sounds good. So yeah, we have, we have this thing. Oh, nice. So we did a barrel pick for the... It's got the octopus on there. See, it's a real miss for you. You could have got one of these. <laughs> this would have been the rye that turned you onto alcohol or uh, onto hard liquor, possibly. I'm going to do the traditional cork pop. I didn't hear yours, but I'll trust you. You did it. Yeah, it wasn't very poppy. Mm. Mine was, uh, I think, because this has been open a while. <laughs> I see. All righty. So this is, uh, we have reviewed Sagamore Rye before. So this is our barrel pick. Some of the details about this barrel pick, 110 proof, age seven years. Their mash bill is a blend of two straight rye mash bills. And uh, we're lucky enough that this comes from the complex palette of Robert William Wagner. Mm-hmm. Since they sent you the samples and you got to pick I just had to trust you. Yeah, so I tasted three and picked this one as the one I liked the best. And if uh, people are interested in trying it, the NFT is out there. We've had a couple people buy one so far. No one has bought the gold one yet, uh, which is where you get the whiskey. So keep that in mind. If you would like whiskey sent to you, get the gold one. The Discord should be up in a day or two. I guess whenever you hear this, it will exist because these are <laughs> behind. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, let's give it a try. Alrighty. Smells a little mapley to me. Get some apple on the smell. Oh, yeah. Caramel apple. There you go. Mm, yeah. Good fall flavor. Ooh, yeah. It's um, got a little bit of that initially. And then you get some what spices am I getting there? Maybe you can describe. Maybe some cardamom. Oh, there you go. You're you're improving star and uh, your vocabulary at least. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something else in the twenty one spice blend for umami. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the cardamom actually kind of strikes true for me. Yeah, I mean it's it's got a little bit of like mulling spices to it. Mm. Hmm. Like continuing that cider theme, 
It's like if you had a whiskey with some cider and spices and you put like way more whiskey than the cider kind of has that going for it. Right. Sagamore really should be sponsoring us at this point because Mm -hmm. every time we talk about them, we champion how delicious they are. The folks we've shared these bottles with have given stellar feedback. So your palate apparently is pretty good. There you go. Even with all the ice you put in there. I don't anymore. I've learned. Yeah. (laughs) You're all grown up and you grown up and you grown up. Well, every time I have this, I like it more. I'm a big fan. It's probably why I drink three bottles a week. Oops. (laughs) Hopefully we have some for the NFT people. I'm going to be biased here. I'm going to bump this one right into eight. This is an eight. Ooh. Mm-hmm. See, I feel like we can't do that because like doing it. we picked it and like we're tooting our own horn a bit. Like, I don't know that it is. My problem is I don't know what an eight would be. So like, I'm afraid to get like push that bar up. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that I don't think there I have any complaints about any of it. I think it's like the right amount of alcohol, good flavors. Yeah. You know, let's say it's an eight. Why not? This could be our first one. Yeah. It's got enough proof to be a little hug for me, but nothing too burny or, or painful. It has uh, just a good round palette of flavors, as we've described. I mean, for a rye, it's just like, it's not punch you in the face, but gives you a little bit of that spice. Mm-hmm. The price point normally would be, you know, pretty good too. I think, well, it was like 60 bucks a bottle, give or take. Yeah. All the things, it just checks the boxes for me. And so I'm going to say like, hey, and even if we're segmenting by type as a rye, this rye is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the price point on this is a little higher just because we did the whole pick it ourselves thing. You can get other barrel picks from Sagamore, but keep in mind, each barrel pick is much different. Mm -hmm. Like the other two that I tasted next to this one, one of them literally was like, like half floating little pieces of black barrel like it was very smoky very like different and then the other one was i don't know more scotchy so this was my favorite oh yeah okay well yeah scotchy scotch scotch i'm not into that as much (laughs) so uh yeah and i think adam would agree i think he would say this is also even as someone 100 yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) this is tailwind endorsed we're going to put that on the bottles from here on out. Everybody heard it here. <laughs> Tailwind endorsed Sagamore Rye from Whiskey Web and whatnot. Cool. So, yeah, let's uh, circle back. And for people who don't know and haven't been on the Internet in a while or something, tell people a little <laughs> bit about what Tailwind is. <laughs> sure. So Tailwind is like we call it a utility first CSS framework. So the idea is it lets you style things basically directly in your markup with little utility classes that just do one thing like font bold to set the font weight or bg black to change the background color or underline to add an underline to things so you end up just like composing a lot of these little single purpose classes directly in your markup often there's 15 of them on a single element to do what you want to do and um you kind of build everything that way so you don't really end up with any css that's kind of project or content specific it's kind of flipped where you have this kind of pool of css that is kind of available at your disposal and you sort of grab the classes you need to apply the styles you want instead of sort of the reverse workflow that i think is probably more common or at least like how i used to work before i started doing things the way that i do with tailwind where you'd have some markup and then you needed to style it so you'd open up a css file 
kind of hook into that markup based on how it was structured or whatever data attributes you added or custom classes you added or whatever, maybe with a little bit of nesting sprinkled in there to target the things that you want and just write the CSS that you need to style that bit. So yeah, we first released it, I think it was Halloween 2017 was the first version, like 0.1.0. We're on version three now. It's grown a lot in in popularity and in terms of kind of what it can do. And, And these days, the way that the whole thing works is it sort of scans your HTML files to detect what classes you're using and just generates just the classes that uh, you're using based on what it finds. So you end up with like the smallest CSS possible based on what you're using. And um, you can even do crazy stuff these days like write classes that basically conjure up new CSS into existence. Like say you need to set the background color to some hyper-specific hex code, but you don't want to configure that as part of your sort of like you know, design tokens for your site because Tailwind is generally driven by this big sort of object that you put together where it's like, here's my color palette, here's the font sizes I want to use, stuff like that. Now you can even do weird stuff like BG dash, then in square brackets, some hex code and Tailwind would just be like, oh, you need a class that makes the text that or that background, that exact random hex code, I will create it for you on the fly. So yeah, it's gotten pretty pretty nuts in that sense, but <laughs> that's sort of like the shortest pitch for it, I guess. And I can uh, talk more about the motivation or benefits or how to achieve certain things or whatever you guys are sort of interested in digging into. I want to know, so yeah, exactly that. So what was the problem that was occurring for you that you were like, hell with this, I'm doing this thing, and then got you down the path to begin with? Yeah, I guess it CSS had just been like a battle for a long time, just trying to always look for that silver bullet that felt like it was going to give me sort of a maintainable code base where I felt like I could come back to things and know how to make changes or even know how to like do something right in the first place. Like I tried so many different things. I tried, you know, the sort of pure semantic approach where you try to try to like put as, as few styling related bits of information into your markup as possible and then just sort of write whatever CSS was necessary to sort of hook into it in whatever way you could sort of imagine, kind of like the old um, CSS Zen garden sort of thing, you know? And then uh, I I just found that no matter what I did, everything slowly just spiraled out of control and you sort of lose track of what changes were safe to make and Every time you needed to style something new, you never really knew if there was something you could reuse that had already been used somewhere else. So you end up trying to create these like little safe corners in the CSS file for yourself with like really specific names, like profile page, header, avatar, wrapper, you know? Okay, that's not going to conflict with anything else anyone else has done. And your CSS just kind of grows and grows and grows. And CSS that's not even being used anymore is still in there because no one knows if it's safe to delete or not because the relationship between the markup and the CSS is very, very complicated. Like, oh, this nth child div child selector thing on this class, is that used anywhere? Well, I know the class is still used, but is there anywhere where there's actually two children anymore? Or so do I still need this? Do I not need this? And no one really like looks at it or maintains it. You just have this like append only style sheets world that I think a lot of us have seen where you just end up with, a, you know, like a 700 kilobyte CSS file basically at the end of the day on a big project and everyone's afraid to sort of touch it or, or refactor it. And um, 
Yeah. So what what I kind of found for me as I was like really getting obsessed with this problem and just I just remember it was probably like 2013 where I just kind of had this moment where I felt like I'm going to figure out how to write my style sheets in a way that I feel confident in, where I feel like I can build what I want to build, that I can maintain things and make changes when I need to make changes. And that's when I really started digging deep into all the content out there I could really find. And there's this blog post by Nicholas Gallagher, I think worked at Twitter at the time. He's the guy who created Normalize CSS originally, which is a mm. pretty OG CSS reset kind of from back in the day. And he wrote this big blog post about, um, it's called like about HTML semantics and front end architecture. And he really makes the case for uh, using sort of presentational class names and goes really deep into it and explains kind of all these benefits and basically just at the end of the day, the whole thing ends with him. Basically, the quote is something like, if you want to be able to keep your like CSS simple and maintainable, like you have to accept that you're going to have to do a lot of work composing things in the HTML instead. And that it's better because like most people feel like really confident and sure of themselves when they're just making little changes in an HTML file, even if the HTML file is messy. But almost no one feels confident like going in and making changes to this nasty, complex CSS file where everything's global and targeting God knows what and God knows what pages. So that was like really interesting for me. And that kind of changed my whole thinking about like even stuff like Bootstrap. I remember when I first started using Bootstrap, I felt this like compulsion to not want like Bootstrap classes in my HTML. I wanted to like use their designed components and stuff like that, but I wanted to figure out ways to use them as like mix-ins so I could mix in a button into like a specific button tag and not actually pollute my HTML by putting like a BTN class somewhere, you know? Mm. Once I read that article by Nicholas Gallagher, I felt like it kind of like gave me permission to do this thing that we had been told for so long was wrong and actually sort of experiment with it. And I just started using things like Bootstrap on projects and just like not worrying about that sort of dogmatic purity element anymore. And, you know, lo and behold, it was actually just really productive and fun. (laughs) Just like adding like a, one of the classes of Bootstrap, it was like calls to, to make something like two columns wide. Like that's like totally evil if you are looking at, you know, CSS best practices or whatever, because you're writing a class that specifies how something should look instead of what something is. So I just said, you know, to hell with it and started doing, embracing that and everything kind of got easier and easier. And then um, one day I was working on a new project and uh, Bootstrap, I think I just released Bootstrap 4 or just started betaing Bootstrap 4 and they were switching from less to SaaS. And I really liked less as a CSS preprocessor and it didn't really like SAS. And I had to decide like, okay, do I want to just keep using Bootstrap, which is a great tool that I love and just bite the bullet and use SAS instead of less? Or do I care more about less than I do using Bootstrap? And I decided I wanted to keep using less. And it also just felt like a fun challenge, just like write on my CSS totally from scratch for a change instead of starting with Bootstrap and making customizations and stuff like that. So I kind of just started from nothing and wrote a CSS for this project from scratch using that same sort of like mentality of trying to write like, in my head, I was thinking of it as like library style CSS. Like what CSS can I write that like doesn't really know how I'm going to use it. It just 
it only knows about itself. Like, okay, so there's like some cards, there's some buttons, there's some grid stuff, whatever. But it doesn't know that there's like a subscribe to newsletter button on the site, you know what I mean? Or anything like that. So I uh, tried to build that all up in this way where the CSS was like very decoupled from the HTML, which I think is very different from how we would have done things in the past. Normally your HTML would be like very specifically crafted for like this HTML and it would only work with that HTML that you've written for that site. Instead, you have this HTML that like has a bunch of references to existing CSS. So, you know, I built that site and it was productive. And then the next site that I wanted to work on, you know, I decided to just grab all that CSS and bring it over as a starting point. And I did that from project to project to project. And I started noticing that like the only things that really survived every port were the things that were lower and lower level. So something like a class that adds margin left to something, that's like useful in every project, but a button might look different in every project. So I had to delete it and create a new one every single time. So it was kind of like every new project, this like original CSS thing was like going through like another filter, you know what I mean? Until like what was left was just these low level utilities. And I started just building things more and more with just the really primitive stuff and composing it together in my markup. So in the past, I might've had like an and one class that turned something into a flex container and centered everything. Over time, I started having a class that added the display value for flex and then another class that like set the align items value and stuff like that. And that's like, just like the natural progression that happened as I was just like trying to pay attention to what are the things that are most reusable? What are the things that don't seem to change from project to project? So I was having a lot of luck with that, but no real intention of turning into a library or anything like that. And um, then I was doing a bunch of these live streams where I was building this SaaS idea that I had. And uh, in my mind, sort of the draw was going to be like I was doing a bunch of test-driven development stuff with Laravel, which is sort of the back-end framework that I was using and building a bunch of cool UI stuff with Vue at the time. And I thought that's what people would be interested in seeing. But all the questions and all the comments and the chat and stuff on all the live streams was like, what is this CSS? I've never seen anything like this before. Or where can I get this to try it on my projects? And, you know, I just didn't even, it didn't even occur to me that this would be something that people were interested in. So, um, you know, based on like how much feedback I was getting on that stuff, I decided, hey, maybe I'll just like turn this into a little open source thing since I'm porting it around from project to project anyways. And around that time, a friend of mine, Jonathan Renink, was working on a redesign of, of his project and was curious to try it on his project. And I thought, oh, this is kind of a cool forcing function for figuring out how can we make one code base that's useful in two projects? Because up until now, I was literally copying and pasting in and editing it every time. Like, what abstractions do we need to create? What sort of level of customization do we need to support? Whatever. So I worked pretty closely with him on that to sort of figure out how to extract something from it that would actually be useful on multiple projects that you could pull in as an actual dependency. And um, yeah, you know, we kind of spent a few months hacking on that for fun in evenings and weekends sort of thing. And uh, then a few months later, we put out like the first version of it. So that's sort of the, the history about, I guess, and how uh, how we got there. And, uh, and yeah, <laughs> so I don't know, I can, uh, give you guys a chance to get a word in, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what 
Chuck had asked originally. Now, I guess like who were you saying? Why did you make it? I guess that's what you asked. I mean, you could paraphrase, I suppose. Yeah. Just like what was the problem set that you ran into that you were like, I'm all right, I'm going to try this path. And I think I did get that answered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does start to make me kind of think back to. So when I started doing things on the web, we were using tables for layout and a lot mm-hmm. of inline styles yeah. to be explicit within whatever cell or whatever you're dealing with there. And in a way, it kind of feels like shorthand to inline styles, but then like mm-hmm. gives you, here's your, here's your tool set. And it's consistent because you're using classes and you're not, you know, writing it out and getting a little crazy with all that. And it's probably a lot more readable, but it does feel a little bit, I don't know how you feel about that comment, but yeah, a little bit like going back to inline styles yeah, saying explicitly here on this element in HTML and we've actually started talking a bunch in this podcast about, I know you're an avid listener about <laughs> like HTML kind of did it right. And it's a good, good tool, right? And CSS explicit to that, like, Hey, that's another attribute. Sure. And it's very readable. I can actually see those parallels. It's probably not a popular opinion, but I mean, the reality is, is that maybe it was a good way of doing things or, you know, a one possible way there wasn't the wrong way. And we lost a sense of that. Sorry, that inline styles were a good way of doing things? Could be, right? And if you think about it, right, like these classes, these class names inline to the element being very explicit to what you're doing and makes it more readable to what that element is getting. It's all like co-located, right? Like you kind of look in one spot Mm -hmm. and sort of understand you don't have to jump around to try and get the full picture, basically. Yeah. And so, like you were saying, ML dash two sure. is very readable versus margin left, eh. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> it's debatable, I'm sure, but it's a little more terse, <laughs> so it doesn't like get quite as hairy. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think like the first thing to think about there is just a lot of people do have that reaction, like, oh, Tailwind is just inline styles. And the, th- the reality is like, yeah, that's basically right. The problem is a lot of people, when they say that, they're kind of saying it with this like implicit part to it that's like, and inline styles are bad. And I would say that like the the real issues with inline styles are not like what most people think are the issues, which is, oh, well, you are putting everything in one place and you're not separating your concerns and some more of these like idealistic values. To me, the real issues with inline styles that necessitated me creating something like Tailwind is technical limitations, which is how do I change the background color of something on hover with an inline style? You know, you can't, there's no pseudo classes in inline styles. How do I change the layout at a different breakpoint in inline styles? You can't because there's no media queries in inline styles. And before we had CSS variables everywhere, you know, how do I have a single source of truth for like my color palette or whatever? You couldn't. Now you can with uh, CSS variables, which is great. So that's like no longer a thing. So, you know, a lot of people or not, I wouldn't say it's like a super common thing that comes up, but I've seen discussions before come up where people have said, especially people who like work on the CSS specs and stuff, like what what improvements could we make to CSS that would make you not need a, a tool like Tailwind anymore? And the problem is like the improvements are not to CSS. The improvement is to the, the style attribute in HTML. Like make the style attribute better. And then like we won't need Tailwind, you know? Right. It'd be more verbose for sure. But um, those are the main problems that um, Tailwind is like ultimately trying to solve is giving inline styles superpowers, you know? It's not like inline styles are evil. It's like 
inline styles are awesome. Like, let's make them super awesome. <laughs> right. That's kind of like the the mentality. So you have to sort of to even have the conversation, I guess you first have to like be willing to suspend your disbelief that maybe inline styles like are not as bad as like you've been told, you know, <laughs> but yeah, like to me, they basically tailwind is basically inline styles with a bunch of extra power bolted on. It's not like, oh, inline styles suck and you shouldn't do inline styles, but tailwind is okay. It's like tailwind is inline styles plus plus, you know? They were good. Let's make them great. You know, that's sort of the attitude I have about it anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's just like the, so we've been polluting our markup with JavaScript now for a little while too. So, I mean, there was already some of these. Yeah, 100%. Potential regressions there, right? That's a good analogy. Like, do you remember when people used to talk about unobtrusive JavaScript back in the day where it's like, okay, how can I target this element and attach some behavior to it without you ever being able to tell just by looking at the HTML that I'm like attaching the JavaScript to it. Yep. And that to me is like the same argument as like the really trying to separate your CSS or, or trying to not let your CSS leak into your HTML at all. But we've all sort of, I mean, we all, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are still, who would still disagree, but it's definitely not that controversial anymore to have like an on-click handler on an element in like your React JSX or in like your view component or using stimulus or whatever else, you know, it seems like pretty, I would say like, the consensus in general seems to be that putting an event handler on an element directly in the markup is like the easiest way to understand how things are working and, you know, main, build that thing in a way that's maintainable. And I think what we do with the CSS is really just like the same thing, just for styles. I think we're having this conversation too, like 15, 20 years beyond where the concerns being addressed at that time and the push for that separation of concerns was a bit different, right? It was, um, oh, the browser isn't doing a great job in accessibility. And if you do inline styles, then you're overriding potential user preferences that could be required mm -hmm. for accessibility purposes, right? Like one of the big things was, oh, you do that. And now the user yeah. can be creating their own CSS, which I doubt that happens hardly anymore because yeah. there's a lot of technology there. Uh, hardware is faster. There's assistive software. There's all of these uh, different things that are sort of addressing those problems now. Mm -hmm. And it's why like we're having the conversations around, do we need single page apps anymore. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe they're still okay, but maybe also server responses are really good and server generated sites actually yeah. aren't a horrible thing. So approach that as a potential option there. Multi-page apps are now a thing again. Yeah. And there's a lot of like kind of hybrid approaches and people are trying to find ways to get the best of both worlds and sort of exploring a lot of things there. Yeah. I, I do think that there is like the history of the web is interesting there, right? Like when you're serving documents and you want people to be able to have like, well, this is how I prefer documents to look when I look at them in the browser. This is how I prefer them to look, being able to have like a user provided style sheet and treat the source as this like untouchable thing makes a lot of sense. I think trying to apply that same workflow to the sorts of things that we build a lot of the time now, like applications like Riverside that we're looking at right now, like this is totally different right. than reading yeah. an article or something. And I still see like the value in being able to write your own style sheet to tweak things. People do that all the time with really popular sites. There's like some Chrome extension that's really popular for that, where you can even like download stuff that people have 
like, oh, I want to hide like all the promoted tweets on Twitter. So here's like a style sheet you can throw in to do that. You know, that's still right. still pretty cool. But you also have to like weigh the needs of the people building the software and their ability to actually keep maintaining it and develop new features and move at any sort of like reasonable velocity without things sort of sort of slowing down. So that might be in conflict with the ability to like easily totally change things from the outside with like a user provided style sheet. Like Tailwind sites are are very they introduce a lot of friction if you're if you're trying to like edit the styles of a Tailwind site from from the outside that way. So they're sort of at odds with each other in a sense, I think, but um that doesn't mean that it's not uh you know important to be able to do that as like the actual developer. Like I definitely think a lot of things we build on the web now it, it's important to to look at the patterns and stuff that work for more for building like desktop applications than it does for, you know, styling documents. I always like laugh when I think about even like uh, going back to like when I was in like college building stuff with like wind forms and stuff, remembering what like the UI was like for that. You'd like drag a button into the thing and like you'd click the button and the little properties panel would come up and you would like edit the color of the button. You know, like it was attached to the button. The the text that was in the button and the color of the button were like two properties that were like right on top of each other in the same window. Mm-hmm. And that no one ever had any complaints about that in those environments. You know, it totally makes sense. But when you try to introduce that type of stuff on the web and, and thinking about the text in the button and the color of the button being defined in the same place, all of a sudden like people start kind of having this allergic reaction to it because it uh, feels like, oh, you're mixing styling and and content. But, you know, for an application, it just it just doesn't really feel the same. So, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things, too, where it's even hard to even uh, articulate the actual benefits of it. Like, I think Tailwind is fairly it's fairly unique in the uh, in how extreme your like initial impression of it would tends to be from the outside versus the impression you have of it when you've actually used it to build something. You know, I've I can't say like I I've been exposed to many other things where you hate it so much before you try it and love it so much after you do. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, it's very polarizing on Twitter. There's like people either love it a ton or hate it. And I I don't really understand why people hate it. Like in my opinion, one of the hardest things is naming things. So like having to come up with a class name for every little thing and then put styles on that. And then, okay, maybe I have thousands of class names in my app and half of those have like display flex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it's not a huge savings, but like if I have a utility for that, I can save, you know, however many bytes that is. Yeah. And if you multiply that times all of the things, like, yeah, it just seems like a no brainer. I think it's usually based on like how invested someone is in an opinion. Yeah. Right? If they went down heavy, the BEM path or atomic CSS or, you know, whatever they love the use styles hook, whatever. They've just really bought in to a way of thinking mm-hmm. and then something that's in opposition to that. Yeah then, you know, they're like, no, 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 I, I made the right choice. And that's, I would guess most of the time, because I think like, it's like you said, there's a lot of context in making those decisions. And for me, I like going to Tailwind UI and doing copy paste, 
make a couple tweaks and have a thing because I don't like to do a lot of UI work. I want to do, you know, the other functional aspects. And so it's, yeah, this is great. Straightforward. Boom. Done it. If I was like working for a university and maybe had like a documents database or something like that and was like taking in things in that context, maybe maybe you'd feel differently about that. And maybe you'd want user flexibility and how they take in like really deep, heavy, long form content like that. I don't know. Yeah, you have to think about what your problems are that you need to solve for sure. I mean, even in Tailwind sites, we you often have like some element that where you can't just like get your hands dirty in the HTML and do stuff. Like if you're building a blog, maybe your blog posts come from like Markdown and you're not going to just like throw tons of classes in the Markdown. So you need to figure out a way to say like, okay, there's this like black box that gets injected in the middle of the page. And I need to style that from the outside. I can't just like go into it and start like adding classes to things. And that's, that's totally fine. You know, that's a constraint for certain things and you work with it and you do the best you can to like make that good. You know, that's like the Tailwind documentation is like that. You know, we have to like style an H2 and we can't just put the class name on the H2. We have to do it from like a parent. So we have like a one div with like some sort of class on it that has all this knowledge about everything that could be inside it and targets it. And that's great and works uh, fine in that situation. I would hate to have that constraint for like a whole site, you know, to feel like I'm never allowed to just like put things directly on things. To me, that's like a last resort. But uh, yeah, I, I agree that I think like a lot of the visceral like reactions that people have are just often driven by like, I'm not even interested in like giving this a chance. Like I'm happy with what works for me and that's totally fine. You know, I have no issues with anyone being happy with anything that they're doing. Uh, you know, it's great. Yeah. There was another point I was wanted to respond to, but I can't remember it. So maybe if it comes to me, we'll just get there. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Feel free to like interject at whatever point. No big deal. Yeah. I just think that like there's somewhat in, in, engineering community there is somewhat of like a fan person mentality mm-hmm. like you kind of get involved in your thing i think robbie would say that's why react is pervasive just because it just was well marketed mm-hmm. for a long time not because it's the best yeah i was going to mention that earlier is like you know a lot of things to keep in mind when you're building anything is that you know whoever is loudest at the time is going to be very hard to go against. There's going to be a lot of people going one way and doing things a certain way. And that's going to be what we say is, you know, like, you know, saying inline styles is bad was like a thing for a long time. And like, there were reasons and like the same for anything, there are reasons, but those things might not be real reasons five years after that, or Mm -hmm. even a year after that, like things go quick. So don't, you know, hear one thing and then go, okay, this is the way it is. I'm never changing it. Like you got to be open to going with the flow and maybe there's better ways to do it that conflict with some of those old ideologies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just ask the questions sometimes. Why, you know, is this still relevant since I'm older than the internet? I, uh, you know, I can, I've seen those phases and so (laughs) sometimes I can like sit back and be like, actually, okay. Yeah. I was on board with that for a little while. I'm not sure I am anymore. Yeah. So pivoting slightly, can you, uh, talk a little bit about headless UI and how that fits in with Tailwind? Yeah, sure. So headless UI is like a, um, I don't know what our tagline for it is these days, but it, it basically tries to be an unstyled 
kind of behavior focused component library. So trying to build things like a drop down or a modal dialogue or even like a toggle or something is um, a lot more involved than you'd think when you want to handle all the accessibility edge cases and concerns that you should probably be worried about, like making sure you can open a menu button and hit up and down to navigate the options sort of stuff, you know, or uh, making sure that when you're in a dialogue and you hit tab, like focus circles back to the beginning of the dialogue and you can't just like tab out of the dialogue without a closing sort of thing. So there's a lot of trickiness there or, or even just like adding ARIA attributes to the right things and managing like what the value of ARIA active descendant should be on a list box as you navigate and hover over different items and stuff. So, you know, historically, if you've wanted to just like not be concerned with all that stuff, you'd want to pull in some existing library, like select two is like a one that we've probably all seen in the wild that handles all that stuff for you generally well, but also kind of comes with a bunch of styling. Usually it was all kind of just one package. And if you wanted to sort of customize it to make it match the rest of your project, so it didn't just look like this third party sort of widget. You have to write all this sort of custom CSS. And I think that's generally okay. But we kind of found when we we're building sites with Tailwind that that wasn't, um, that sort of forced you out of this like workflow of styling things in your markup because I can't just like add whatever classes I want to all of the individual spans and divs and whatever that select two is going to generate because that's kind of internal to select two. So we thought it'd be cool to try and build a library that tries to handle all of the keyboard stuff, all of the ARIA attribute stuff, all of the state management stuff and everything, but gives you full control over what elements are rendered unless you add classes to them. So the motivation really was to create like a very Tailwind compatible set of UI components where you could style them however you want and sort of like decouple the styling from all of the complex interactions so that that stuff could be maintained by the library and bugs can be fixed there and you can just pull them in and not think about them yourself or have to worry about how it all works, but still be in total control of the styling. So we have a, uh, a library for React and another library for Vue. And one of the main motivations for doing it in the first place is we have this commercial product, Tailwind UI, which is like a big website of component examples and templates built with Tailwind. And that's sort of like the product that basically funds all the open source stuff is people buy that. And that gives us what we need to be able to pay the team to work on all the open source stuff. And when we first released it, we didn't have anything like headless UI. So it felt like we were pretty limited in what we could add. It was hard to add really interactive examples because how are we going to write the JavaScript? Are we just going to like okay, we need to make like a dialogue. Are we just going to write 600 lines of JavaScript and just give that to you to just pull into your project and maintain yourself? That kind of sucks, especially if we need to fix a bug in it and how you find out about that, you know? So we wanted to figure out a way, how can we like wrap all this stuff up into a library so that we can add interactive examples to Tailwind UI where the only thing that's in the Tailwind UI example is like the markup and the styling related stuff and all that complexity is tucked away in this dependency. So that was sort of like the motivation for that. So we could add dialogues, we could add drop downs, we could add combo boxes and radio groups and tabs and stuff like that. So we released that, I think like it was probably like April 2021 was the first release of that stuff. And uh, 
it's become like a really cool tool. Like it's it's a really good companion for Tailwind, you know? So it's it's cool that we've been able to sort of do that. And these days we sort of like drive out new stuff for that by just working on the commercial templates and stuff, um, which is kind of proven to be like a pretty fun workflow. You know, we have the designers cook up something really cool. We try to build up a Tailwind. We find some things that we can't do. So we add new features to Tailwind to be able to do it. Or uh, there's some interaction that we need to figure out how to support. We add new features to Headless UI to do it. So the commercial stuff's been like a good way for us to sort of dog food our own tools and find a real world kind of things that are too hard to do with them that we can figure out ways to make easier. So it's this cool sort of um, feedback loop there. And that's kind of what kind of just keeps us busy as a company all all the time, really, is just like being in some part of that loop, basically. So like August and September, or July, August, we did a lot of work on Tailwind UI, released a bunch of templates. And uh, now this month, we've been working on like a Tailwind 3.2 release with a bunch of stuff that we feel would have been nice to have now based on what we learned from building on that stuff. And then at the end of the year, we'll probably swing back over to designing and building stuff. And then after that, probably swing back to improving the open source stuff based on what we learned from that, you know? So uh, yeah, that's kind of where Headless UI came from and kind of how it works. But I can answer yeah any specific questions you have or anything for sure. Yeah, I guess related to, you said there's React and Vue support mm-hmm. currently. Is there anything planned as the next thing to support? Like uh, SolidJS, LibJS. Uh, exactly where I was going. Insert hype framework here, JS. <laughs> it's hard. Uh, it's like an enormous amount of work to support even one. So right. I'm not sure what the, the future is there. I think um, there's like a community maintained Svelte one, which is cool to see that someone tried to take you know, those API decisions and do it that way. I know like Caleb Porzio's work on like an Alpine JS version of Headless UI too. I think that's probably the only um, realistic way that that stuff's going to happen is for people to just sort of be inspired by those APIs and sort of maintain what they want that solves sort of the same problem and borrows as much or as little as they want from that stuff. It's tough because, uh, you know, as a company, we're only, you know, like I said, seven and a half people and, uh, we use React for everything just because that's what everyone knows and um, that's what we've historically used. So even the view stuff in a lot of ways is like a bit of a burden to maintain because we just don't use it ourselves, you know, which is not a situation I really love being in. I prefer to be like really using the stuff that we're maintaining ourselves. Otherwise, like, how can we know if it's really any good? So there's no concrete plans for like making, for adding new libraries that support other other frameworks. If we ever kind of get the SolidJS bug or something and start using it for everything ourselves, I think Headless UI for SolidJS will just will itself into existence out of us desperately wanting it, you know? But until then, I think it it's better for the community to sort of to handle that stuff. Because, yeah, just too resource constrained, really, at the end of the day. That's fair. So it is uh, open source then, Headless UI is open source. And mm-hmm. if someone wanted to contribute a package for their totally. flavor, totally cool. Yeah, probably it would be better to just do it in your own repo. Not like, open source is tough, man. Like, it's all just like drive-by contributions, you know what I mean? Where it's like, okay, here's like a big feature. 
enjoy maintaining it for the rest of your life <laughs> you know once it comes in it's like it's you're kind of responsible for it it's like someone dropping a baby off at your front door a lot of the time so we try to be careful about uh sort of taking that stuff on and be very deliberate about the stuff that we take on so we do end up encouraging people to kind of keep stuff in their own repositories in their own projects a lot of time just so that it's clear like who's who's maintaining it you know but yeah, it's open source in the sense that you can go and study all the internals and uh, contribute patches and stuff to the to the view and React uh, packages. And um, yeah, probably forking it doesn't make sense to make like a solid JS version out of a fork necessarily, since it's a different framework. But yeah, you can totally just dig in there and sort of get as much inspiration or you know whatever you want to call it as as needed to sort of put together something that solves those problems in the most solid js way possible. <laughs> That's fair. So let's pivot to a little bit of whatnot here. Tell us about your powerlifting career. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I got it into powerlifting when I was like, uh, probably like 21 or something like that, just because I was trying to get into exercising and I never really was able to stick with it when the goal was just like to exercise for the sake of exercising, but eventually stumbled across like some materials online about like strength training. And that was like, oh, these were like the missing keywords that I needed, you know, like not like home gym workout or whatever. And kind of got into a bunch of that stuff and kind of got bit by the bug of just measuring progress and like how much weight you're lifting instead of like how much better you look in the mirror or something because it's just like so much more measurable it's like a number on a piece of paper like i bench pressed this last week and now i bench pressed this this week and for me anyways like that type of like measurable progress is like super addictive and motivating so i kind of kicked off like a a long obsession <laughs> with that stuff to the point where you know within like four or five years i was competing in like national powerlifting competitions and uh you know i won the last one I did, which was like 2013 in my weight class, which was pretty exciting. Then I kind of got like a, a bad nagging back injury that sort of plagued me ever since then and haven't been able to do it at the competitive level. But, uh, you know, it's something that I still um, I still follow closely. And now that at least I've got sort of the habit of, of training, I don't really need the same, uh, you know, seeing those numbers go up to kind of keep me doing it. It's just like you've been doing it for so long. You just, you do it now because it's a habit, thankfully. So I'm glad I've been able to do that. But uh, yeah, that's like a a big thing for me outside of the uh, web development part of my life for sure. Do you have a like setup at home or do you go to a a gym or? Yeah, I have like a, a garage gym that I kind of built together at a different stuff over the years which has been good except in the in the winter time it's pretty rough but uh in the summertime it's rough too like actually right now is like the absolute golden time of year where you know it's like a cool 60 degrees outside or whatever where and you're in there and uh it's like the perfect weather for for working out in the garage but uh yeah it's, it's cool i'm in phoenix it's still hot here in the garage so yeah i think it's hot in phoenix forever right it's hot all the time yeah yeah sort of we've always like kind of talked about maybe visiting arizona one day because it seems like a cool spot with just like a very different sort of Mm -hmm. scenery to check out than what we're used to you know just like cool desert rocks and awesome 
kind of stuff to see. So I kind of have it in like my weather app in my phone. And once in a while, I'm just kind of like, oh, it's miserable here. I wonder what it's like in these spots. And dude, Phoenix, uh, it's a hot place. That's what I've learned. <laughs> yeah, but it's different because the humidity is way lower. Yeah, I, mean, I lived in D.C. for seven years and grew up in like Cincinnati area. So I've dealt with humidity before. And, you know, when you see 90 here, it's not like 90 in a swamp or something. Yeah. But when you see like 120, like that feels like yeah. it's still hot. It's hot. <laughs> <laughs> the other misnomer, it is very hot, but we have pools and air conditioning, so it's all tolerable. But also a lot of people will just like take off and go San Diego in six hours or something, or mm-hmm. you can just drive a couple hours up north. The elevation is way higher. And so it gets cooler there too. I mean, you can ski, you could Actually, what we do in the winter is when there's snow up north, we can drive up north, let the kids play in the snow for a couple of hours and then drive back down and just wear T-shirts. So it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Two thirds of the state is actually a much higher elevation. Like mountains here go as much as 11,000 foot elevation, I think is like the biggest one here. So you're like 7,000 feet above sea level Uh, other than the the desert so the desert's like the other third there's like phoenix and tucson the most populous cities so that's why we're kind of known that way but actually most of the state isn't very cool it's kind of like the fun fact there is you get the best of both worlds very cool yeah we'll have to make it out that way sometime for sure yeah definitely seems like a spot worth seeing yeah yeah i think it's pretty i, I like desert landscape personally like the saguaro cactus grows here nowhere else in the world mm-hmm. and being able to like see that is pretty nice i'm not sure where you're at i didn't stalk you that much i'm uh outside of toronto like an hour outside of toronto so oh yes that's why you're so polite that makes yeah. sense <laughs> <laughs> basically live in buffalo weather you know yeah yeah i used to work for a company called aquia out of boston but most of my teams were in toronto and so it would be always be nice traveling to toronto and i did it in january one time never again the rest of my life it was i was staying in a hotel that was like two blocks from the office and it was the most miserable experience I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Maybe that's a desert dwelling thing. I don't know what it was. I was like, why am I here? This isn't happening ever again. Boston is like a beach compared to this right now. That's funny. Yeah. It, uh, it gets pretty cold hot in the summer, cold in the winter. We try to just get the hell out of here a few times in the winter, like going to Florida next month. And then, Oh yeah. Going on a trip in the spring or February, you know, Hopefully the town you're going to is still there. Yeah. Yeah. Just Orlando. Just doing the. Oh, yeah. Disney thing. Going with the kids, you know. Yeah. I think we're doing Universal this time. Oh, nice. Nice. How old are your kids? Five and a year and a half. Oh, okay. We're in a kind of similar boat. Uh, Three and six for me. Nice. So what what sage-like fatherly advice would you give Robbie as a newer dad? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just keep surviving. Good luck. <laughs> I don't really have it. Just survive. Just survive. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, that's it. It's a, uh, no one can prepare you for like how much your life changes after you have kids. It is literally yeah. impossible. If you told me like whenever I see someone complaining that they, they don't have any time to do what they want to do, but they don't have kids. That's like, yeah. what are you even talking about? I feel like I would have like landed yeah. on Mars by now in my own self-made <laughs> rocket. If I didn't have kids, you know, mm-hmm. for sure. It is a life changing thing, but it is uh it's good. 
Yeah. Well, Elon Musk does that. He has rockets, but just doesn't pay attention to his kids. I don't know if he really has kids the same way. (laughs) He doesn't do anything with them. So that's how he gets around it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, he can spend time with them, but he can also like he has a maid and a nanny, I'm sure. And cooks and just everything else, like all the other conveniences that you have to do. Like he's not getting up with them in the morning and making them breakfast. I don't think he even lives in the same house as any of them. So no. Yeah. Yeah, his, he's got a weird setup. I haven't read into all of it, but he has kids with, what, like three or four different women? Like I, He's got like eight or nine kids, right? So There's a lot, yeah. Yeah, and they were like all on purpose, like at the same time. Like there's no real relationships there. I'm not really sure how it works. He's just like, hey, you guys want to all have kids? And they were like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> just so you know, though, like yeah. I'm going to be making rockets most of the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll send you a lot of money. Don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. I'll send you a robot. Yeah. We'll take care of you. Impart knowledge. Cool. Well, I got to go get going here, guys, because it's uh, dinner time for me. But uh, yeah. Yeah, this was fun. Glad we got to uh, do this and catch up. Yeah. Is there anything you want to plug before we end here? Uh, not really. I've, you know, tailwind, which we talked about enough, I think. So <laughs> yeah, probably good on that front. Fair enough. Yeah, you're kind of associated with it at this point. Yeah. I'm wearing it literally tailwind merchandise you know it's a business expense so <laughs> which you can purchase for 1995 on, on uh, <laughs> yeah it seems underpriced cool well yeah thanks for coming on uh thanks everybody for listening if you liked it please subscribe and we'll catch you next time awesome thanks guys boom, boom, boom. thanks for listening to whiskey web and whatnot this podcast is brought to you by Shipshape and produced by podcast royale If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io.